You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Jesus will reign from earth, not heaven. That's the title of today's episode. This is brought to you by Christadelphianvideo.org. It's a Bible truth feed podcast. The Bible consistently and clearly teaches that the kingdom of heaven is on earth. This talk will show how and why that belief changed and the importance of following Bible teaching. A very important question to answer, a problem to solve. And our statement, our premise is that the Lord Jesus Christ will reign from earth, not from heaven. We'd like to start our consideration this evening by asking you a question. And the question is, what is the most important message of the gospel? Is it our salvation? Is it that Jesus died for you and he is our savior? And that's the most important thing of the gospel message. Well, it would seem so because when you walk into a church, most likely at the uh, front of the hall, you're going to see an icon of Jesus on a cross. And when you do a web search on what is the gospel message, some 95% of the results uh, list our salvation as the gospel message. So, for example, just to uh, list a couple of them, when we go to a a Christian evangelical site, thebible.org, under the uh, title or, or the article, What is the Gospel?, it says when Christians refer to the gospel, they're referring to the good news, which is what the word gospel means, that Jesus Christ died to pay for the penalty for our sins so that we might become the children of God through faith alone in Christ alone. That's their definition of the gospel message. When we go to a site which is the National Association of Evangelical Churches, their statement of faith is we believe in the Bible to be inspired, that there's one God in three, that there's the present ministry of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection unto life and unto damnation, and the spiritual unity of believers. Now, there's a problem with many of these statements, but the point is, most of them only have to do with salvation. So, what's missing from the gospel message of the churches around us? Is there anything missing from their gospel message? Well, It would seem so, because when we turn to the Bible, we find this summary message in Matthew chapter 4, which says that the Lord Jesus Christ went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So where's this gospel message in the churches today? When 95% of the uh, results from a web web search make 
no mention of it at all. Well, what do they say about the kingdom of God? Well, you, if you speak to people, some would say, well, the kingdom of God is in heaven, and Jesus will rule from there, and, and somehow we, we go to join him there. The earth will be dissolved, and, and heaven will be our eternal home. Others would say, well, the kingdom of God is the supremacy of Jesus in your heart. That when you recognize him as your savior, that makes him your king. And so he rules in a spiritual sense, in our minds. Some others would say, well, the kingdom of God is Christendom as a whole. That it's the teaching that, that Jesus Uh, the teaching of Jesus, will slowly grow and overtake the present governments of the world, and the church will slowly but surely fill the earth one day and rule all of mankind. So a couple of examples, again, when we we do a search on Christianity.com under the article, What is the Kingdom of God? They say, when you are under his lordship, And when he's in control of your life, that is the kingdom of God. It's not rules and regulations, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If we look at the Catholic Encyclopedia, under the article, The Kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is an expression that means the innermost teaching of the Old Testament as summed up But it should be noted that the word kingdom means ruling as well. Thus, it signifies not so much the actual kingdom as the sway of the king. And in the New Testament, the kingdom means not so much a goal to be attained or a place, though these meanings are by no means excluded. It is rather a tone of mind. And lastly, uh, on the Bible.org, the God's kingdom is established during the time of Rome, or was established during the time of Rome, but it was a spiritual kingdom. The final stage of this kingdom will begin at Christ's return as he establishes his eternal rule on earth. So somehow there's there's two stages to the kingdom of God, a spiritual one and then a, a physical one. Well, it's important to note that the early church did not have these beliefs. The early church, it's actually recorded, believed in a literal kingdom of God established on the earth with Jerusalem as its capital. And we know this because if we turn to the writings of a man called Tertullian, who lived from AD 160 to 220, very early in church history, he was a prolific a Christian author who wrote from Carthage, which I learned is a province in Africa. Um, And now, although he had many false beliefs, like the Trinity, his writings show what the early church believed about the kingdom of God. So he writes in his work against Marcion, we do confess that a kingdom is promised to us upon the earth inasmuch as it will be after the resurrection for a thousand years in the divinely built city of Jerusalem. So 
The early church taught about a literal kingdom that displaces the, the current governments upon the earth, and, and this is what the early church believed. So what happened? Where was the transition? Where do today's current views come from? Well, by the 5th century AD, a few hundred years later, the doctrine of the kingdom of God was overwhelmed by the teaching of one man. And that man was Augustine. He was the most influential theologian in his day, particularly towards the Catholic Church. And he wrote a very large volume. He wrote from 413, so this is now about two, two to 300 years later, 413 to 426, he wrote a work called Concerning the City of God Against the Pagans. And he taught that the church was the kingdom of God on earth. And so he writes, the kingdom of God is already manifest in the church. The age between Pentecost and the return of Christ was the very millennium itself and marked by the ever-increasing influence of the church in overturning evil. Therefore, the church even now is the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. Accordingly, even now, his saints reign with him. Well, is all of this teaching correct? Is the great importance of the gospel message our salvation? Did Christ come to save us so that we could be with him in heaven? And, and what exactly is the kingdom of God? Where will it be? And if Christ is going to be the ruler of the kingdom of God, does he rule from heaven? Or is it a kingdom upon the earth that he rules from? Well, let's turn to the Bible, and let's, let's just see what the Bible has to say about many of these things. And in particular, we would like to start with, what is the most important subject of the gospel message? What is it? We ought to understand this. It's of great importance that we understand the details of the gospel. And we also ought to understand the details of the, go uh, the gospel or the teaching of the kingdom of God. Because as we're going to find out, that is the great subject of the preaching of Jesus and the apostles. Now, We've already made reference to Matthew chapter 4, which said, Jesus went about all Galilee and preached the gospel of the kingdom. Well, what else does he say? Look at Luke chapter 4. Christ says this, I must preach the kingdom of God in other cities also, for therefore am I sent you know what he's saying? He's saying, look, the whole reason that I came here was to deliver a message. And the message has to do with the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom, occurs many times in the writings of the gospel writers. And furthermore, 
If Jesus says the most important thing is the gospel of the kingdom, he also then says in Matthew chapter 16, he says, go into all the world, he says to his disciples, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. You see, he's saying you must know and believe the doctrine of the kingdom of God. It's the first condition of salvation. Well, what else does Christ say about the kingdom of God? How about Matthew chapter 6? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's to be our first priority. And how does he teach us to pray? Also in Matthew chapter 6, thy kingdom come was his prayer that he taught to his apostles. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. And what's more, the kingdom of God was so important that the Lord Jesus Christ even spoke to his disciples about the kingdom of God after his resurrection. So in Acts 1, he's, he's showed himself after his resurrection by infallible proofs, and he had seen them for 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And what's more, also, even after his resurrection, the apostles continued to preach the kingdom of God as an essential element of the gospel. So today's gospel preached by the churches around us seemed to be a very different one than that preached by Christ and the apostles. Where's the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God? A gospel that must be believed for salvation. Where's the teaching in the churches of the details of this kingdom? Why does a search for the gospel message virtually return no mention of the kingdom of God that Jesus said he must come to preach? That we ought to seek first the knowledge of which is a condition of our salvation that we ought to be praying for all the time. Now, we're not saying that our salvation is not a part of the gospel message. But what we are saying is that prior to the death of Christ, our salvation formed virtually no part of the gospel message. And we're actually told that, that Jesus did tell his apostles in, in Luke chapter 9 that he would be crucified and that he would be resurrected and that was a means to their salvation. But it also says later on in that chapter, they didn't understand what he meant in Luke 9 and verse 45. Subsequently, however, to the death of Christ... Uh, for our sins, it became to be preached that our salvation was also a part of the kingdom of God. 
And so it was a supplement to the things concerning the kingdom of God. You see, in the Gospels, that's the predominant phrase, isn't it? But in the Acts, after his resurrection, we find it's the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And so the things concerning the name of Jesus Christ are the doctrinal teaching about the only name whereby man may be saved. And this was added to the things concerning the kingdom of God to make it work. You see, the gospel of the kingdom of God, we're going to find out, is about an everlasting kingdom. But an everlasting kingdom isn't really good news if we can't participate in it. And so this had to be added to allow us to be a part of it. And so the one part is really incomplete without the other. There was, an, was not an alteration of the gospel after Christ's ascension, but there was an addition. And they both go together. Apart, they are incomplete. And so let's delve into now what the Bible has to say about the kingdom of God. We might say, what is the doctrine of the kingdom of God? Well, the doctrine of the kingdom of God actually starts with the kingdom of men. So when we turn to Daniel, the book of Daniel, we find this phrase, the kingdom of men, numerous times in, in the, the writings of this prophet. Now, you might ask yourself why it doesn't say the kingdoms, plural, the kingdoms of men. And the reason is that this is written from God's point of view. You see, no matter the form, no matter the country, it's all the same to him. The kingdom of men is the sum of all human government. It's the embodiment of the rule of man. Whether it's a dictatorship or a democracy, the cornerstone of the kingdom of men is the will of man. You see, in their mind, God has to do with spiritual things, and things in the heaven. But on earth, to them, there is no higher authority than themselves, than man. They are their own masters. But you know, interestingly, when you look at this verse, it says that the most high ruleth, in the kingdom of men and giveth to it, giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. So really, it's a kingdom that is permitted to exist by God. The most high ruleth in the kingdom of men. Now, in Daniel, there is a very vivid description of the kingdom of men. And it actually comes to us in the form of an image. And we find it in Daniel chapter 2. Now, 
I'm going to assume that you've seen this image before in, in lectures here in this hall because we're not going to take the time to read through Daniel chapter 2 and go through all the details. And if you haven't read Daniel chapter 2, I invite you to read this very, very interesting chapter and, and do a bit of research into it and you'll find that even historians agree with the accuracy of the meaning of this chapter. And so in Daniel chapter 2, we have the image, this towering image of a man, great and imposing, and it's describing history that goes back some 26 centuries ago to the very earliest of historical age to describe four successive phases or forms of universal world government. But in the chapter, there's a second object, an independent object. It's a stone that whizzes through the air and strikes the feet of the image. The image is overturned, it says in the chapter. It bursts into fragments, and then the stone grinds all the fragments to powder. And the wind blows the dust away. And then in the chapter, it says that the stone enlarges into a great mountain that fills the earth. Now, I want you to note carefully that there are two independent objects. There's this towering metallic man and a stone. And they are directly antagonistic to each other. There's, there's no affinity between them. The stone doesn't gradually incorporate itself into the metal image. It dashes it with violence. It brings it to ruin. And, and then afterwards the wind blows away the remnants of the man. And the stone is what grows to fill all the earth. And what's important also to realize is the fourth stage of that man image, it's still lingering today. It's the Roman vestiges of that empire that is in the countries of Europe. It's still there. It's a prolongation, really, of the Roman Empire in a very weak form. And the stone, as well, the chapter points out, grows to be an everlasting kingdom. It says it's a kingdom that's established by God. It expands into an all-earth-occupying uh, dimension. And Daniel 2.44 says, God shall set up a kingdom. That's the meaning of that stone growing that way. And the stone, another detail, uh, destroys this man very violently. It's, it's visible to all. There's a suddenness with it. Now, if you think about it, if it's four successive kingdoms, each kingdom overtakes the next. Well, there must have been some violence involved with, with each kingdom. It didn't smoothly transition from one kingdom to the next. But in the vision of Daniel 2... The only violence that's mentioned is that of the stone. 
And so it must be that this involved unprecedented violence to break in pieces and consume the other kingdoms. They're all, all forms of human government are completely and violently suppressed. And and there's many other references there that, that refer to this. Well, what is this proof? What's the point of this? The point is this. The kingdom of God, if you believe this chapter in Daniel 2, is not within you. It's not something that grows gradually in men's hearts. Nor is the kingdom of God the growing of Christianity through the world and through its churches to slowly and and gently overcome the rule of the world. It's done with violence and with suddenness. And also consider that it's the God of heaven who will set up a kingdom. And so it's not just about the destruction of the kingdom of men. It's about the building of a kingdom of God. Well, let's ask ourselves, what goes into a kingdom? Well, if you have a kingdom, then certainly you must have a king. But a king can't rule by himself, so a king needs to have rulers that rule with him. And they need to have people that they're going to rule over. And there must be some defined territory of this kingdom, and there have to be laws that this kingdom abides by, and they have to be arranged and combined. Because a king does not a kingdom make. You need all the elements together. And so if a kingdom of God is to be set up, then you would expect a God-appointed king. And God-constituted rulers. And a God-selected people. And a God-chosen land. Living by God-given laws. All together constituting a kingdom of God on earth. Well, in fact, all of these things, all of these components are described in great detail in the Bible as part of the gospel of the kingdom of God that is necessary for us to understand for our salvation. And and the onus is on each of us to learn these details. But our focus this evening is on the king. The king of the kingdom of God. Well, if if Daniel is prophesying about a kingdom of God that will overthrow the kingdom of men on earth, if Christ is the king of the kingdom of God, well, does it not follow that he rules on the earth. But, but can it be proved that Jesus Christ is the king of the kingdom of God? Well, sticking with Daniel, if we have a look at Daniel chapter 7, we read there that there is one like the Son of Man who came with the clouds of heaven 
and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near. And in verse 14, it says, There was given unto him dominion, glory, a kingdom. All people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom that shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. Well, this sounds very much like the ideas of Daniel chapter 2. A kingdom that will fill the earth and overtake the kingdom of men. A kingdom that is forever. And at the head of it, there is one like the Son of Man. Well, you look through the Bible and you'll find that this term, Son of Man, is used almost exclusively of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it would seem that he is the king of the kingdom of God. Well, is there more proof that Jesus Christ is a king on the earth? Well, I'd like to refer to the chapter that we had read this evening in Isaiah chapter 11. And this is going to be a useful exercise because it's going to show us how We can use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And by doing this, we can define things. We can prove things. So Daniel chapter 11, uh, in the first few verses, is talking about this rod that comes out of the stem of Jesse, a branch that comes out of his, his roots, and, and what the qualities of this person would be. And, and then in verses uh, 4 down to about verse 8, it's describing the conditions of a kingdom, a, the beautiful conditions of, of what it would be like upon the earth with this ruler as the head of this kingdom. You see, it's describing the conditions of the kingdom of God on the earth. And it says in verse 9 that the knowledge of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's, it's a world government ruling under conditions and laws far, far different than that of today. I'm sure any one of us would love to live on the earth under conditions like that. But Who is this king? Who's the king of this kingdom upon the earth? Well, the first couple of verses seem to agree with verse 10. And verse 10 says that it's to do with the root of Jesse. Now, Jesse was the father of King David. So this person is going to be in the lineage of David. Now, to really prove who this person is, we're going to turn to the New Testament. And you see, Paul in Romans chapter 15 is speaking specifically about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 8, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision of the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. 
But then as he progresses through the chapter, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what he does? He quotes Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10. In Romans 15 and verse 12, he says again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and in him shall the Gentiles trust. It's Jesus who's the root and the branch in the line of David, who Isaiah says is the king of this wonderful kingdom, of these wonderful conditions upon the earth. It's proof The Bible proves itself that Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God on the earth. Well, are there other passages? Is this the only one we can rely on? Well, how about Isaiah chapter 9? So in Isaiah chapter 9, we we read these these truly beautiful, magnificent verses um, at chapter 9. Uh, at verse 6 and 7, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. In verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. It's the kingdom of God, isn't it? Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it. Well, does anyone recognize these two verses and where they're from? They're used in Handel's Messiah. They're universally recognized as applying to the Lord Jesus Christ. And these verses are saying that upon his shoulders, of his government, there will be peace without end. That it will be a throne of David, a kingdom of God on earth with Jesus as its king. Well, what did the angel say to Mary when she, the angel told her that she would conceive and give birth to a son, Jesus. Well, it said that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there would be no end. This Jesus would reign over the nation of Israel on earth, over a kingdom that never ends. Well, what about this this connection between David and Christ. Isaiah says he's the root of Jesse. Micah 5 says he's the ruler of Israel. Luke says he's the ruler of the house of Jacob. They're all positions that David held in the past when he sat on the throne of Israel, in the kingdom of Israel that was first established. And so it's this throne that is prophesied about. It represents the position of a descendant of David as king of the Jews and also the ruler of all the earth. Well, could a case be made that that that's in heaven? I mean, Jesus is there now in heaven. But isn't it interesting that the Bible goes out of its way to point out that nothing David ever possessed is in heaven and that he himself is not there now. 
And so this is Peter being quoted on the day of Pentecost, emphatically stating, David's not in heaven. So David's throne will be re-established, set up again, in the place it was in the past, on the earth, in Jerusalem. And so in summary then, to, to describe what we're, we're looking at here in the Bible, we're looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the stone of Daniel chapter 2, who will come to break in pieces the kingdom of men, the, the ten-toed image of Daniel chapter 2, and grind it to powder, and the wind will blow the dust of, of it away like the dust of a threshing floor. And that, that stone will expand to fill the entire earth. And it will be said that the kingdom of this world, kingdoms of this world, shall become the kingdoms of the Lord. And the form of government will be a dictatorship. And it will be the Lord Jesus Christ who will possess unequaled wisdom, who will show mercy without selfishness, no weakness. There will be complete omnipotence to enforce his will. And he will be immortal. Death will never interrupt his reign. The innocent will be protected. Poverty will be vanished. There will be a righteous government that will be firm. There will never be doubt or indecision. And it will be a government that's administered by the king's brethren. They're going to be immortal, incorruptible. They will have been prepared by trial. And power will be in their hands by his authority. And there will no longer be the power of the people or political birthright. And it will be said, the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. And so we ask again, does Jesus rule from heaven Will he only rule in a spiritual sense, in a believer's heart? Are these passages referring to Jesus ruling over spiritual Jews, those who, or, or those who are his followers? Do you, if you still think that this might be the case, then we have some questions for you. we challenge you to answer a few questions. If the kingdom of God is the church growing slowly and its spirituality and transitioning the world nicely into a kingdom of God, how do you explain Daniel chapter 2, where the stone violently and suddenly crushes the metallic man representing the governments of the world? If Jesus is a king who rules only in a spiritual sense, in the hearts of believers, which would make him the ruler <coughs> over those who've chosen to follow him, then how do you answer John 15 and Romans 8 and Ephesians 5, where Jesus calls his followers 
not servants, but friends, where he calls them joint heirs with Christ, where he calls them his bride, not his subjects. And how about this question? If, if the teaching of Scripture is that Jesus rules in heaven and not literally on earth over a literal kingdom on earth, then why did Herod murder all male children in Bethlehem under the age of two? If the understanding of Scripture at that time and now is that he rules from heaven, why was he filled with jealousy and saw the one born, the king of the Jews, as a rival to his kingship on the earth? How can it be that Jesus rules anywhere but literally on earth as a literal king over a literal government? Well, we like to finish our session this evening with this. And that is that we're not guaranteed a place in the kingdom of God. There's a little bit of homework required on our part. We have to work at being a part of the kingdom of God. There is some effort required by us. And Peter, in his epistle, in second epistle of Peter chapter 1, does that for us. He encourages us. He motivates us. He says in verse 4 that there are given to us exceeding great and precious promises that by these he might be the partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, surely you'd agree with what the Apostle Peter is saying in here, here in, and that is that the kingdom of men is falling apart. Pandemics, wars, the threats of nuclear weapons, there's no solution but to escape the corruption of this world. And so, what are these promises he's talking about? What more does the Bible have to say about the kingdom of God? How close are we to its appearing? What's our responsibility to Jesus Christ so that he would count us as one of his true followers? And that the world and that he or that he would be pleased to appoint us as one of his co-rulers at his coming kingdom. Well, we have some work to do, don't we? Some homework, as it were. And we should all be motivated to look more deeply into these things. And, and Peter encourages us to do this. Later in the chapter, he writes at verses 10 and 11, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fail. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.